I'm Tressa. And, and we, we are, are not, not amused. amused. Today, we are going to be talking about the Beatles. Again. <laughs> again and again and again. Because they have so much music. Yeah, this time we are talking about Era 2, which should be one episode. And two albums. Yes. <laughs> so that's what we're gonna do. But first, we're gonna talk about tea. Um, so I have a Bigelow tea. It is called Plantation Mint. Fresh and flavorful tea blended with natural spearmint leaves. So... I was asking Tressa what the difference between this and peppermint tea would be. <laughs> and peppermint tea was just made from peppermint yeah, leaves. Yeah, it's literally just peppermint. And this is made from black tea and spearmint. It's also called plantation mint, and I wonder how they get away with that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Is there a copyright date on that <laughs> tea bag? Uh, I mean, mine has one. Anyway. No. Oh, uh, well, it's a family tea blender since 1945, but that's not this tea. Right. Okay. What's your tea? I am drinking organic green tea matcha with toasted rice, which is, I would say, very much out of my comfort zone. Um, it is really, it's, it's tea, it's herbal tea. It looks like a gin... Maicha tea, which is sencha tea combined with toasted rice and then organic matcha tea. Hmm. I don't know. It smells to me like green tea. Hmm. Um, the the packet anyway, and then after it's steeped, it smells terrible. So we shall see what it tastes like. It smells like gum. <sighs> it's probably like going to be drinking spearmint gum. I like spearmint gum. I do so too. I like it. I don't know if I want to drink it, but I like chewing it. <laughs> I don't know. So we'll see. We're, we're definitely drinking some different teas today, which I feel like that totally goes along with these very different albums we're about to discuss. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. We well, did let's it. just dive on in. Alrighty. <laughs> okay. So, yes, we are going to be talking about Rubber Soul and Revolver today. Mm-hmm. And I will be talking about Rubber Soul first because it. Came out before Revolver. Mm-hmm. Yes. Good job, Taylor. Mm-hmm. Oh, and Esteban says hello to everyone. If you can hear him. <laughs> He's upset because he can't get into one room. Yes. Because the door is shut. So, just a little background noise for you. How sad for him I that know. he cannot access one room in this entire apartment. <laughs> I am so sad. <laughs> okay, so... Rubber Soul was released December 3rd, 1965 in the UK. Wasn't there another album released on December 3rd? Or like early December one year? Because uh, it was supposed to be a Christmas presents or something? Beatles First Sale was released December 4th, 1964. Oh. Okay, December 4th. All right. You're close. It one day. Was. <laughs> okay, so as my way goes, if you listen to Era 1, Parts 1 and 2, I go through the songs, and then a little bit about the album, and then <laughs> go back to the songs, and then I'm just all over the place. So here we go. The songs for this album were, or are, because you can still get it, Drive My Car. Should we go, should we see, see what Tressa <sighs> knows? Great. Yeah, sure, why not? Embarrass me again. Drive My Car? Mm-mm. I think you would. I think you would know it if you heard it. 
Norwegian wood? No. You won't see me? Nope. Nowhere man? Nope. Think for yourself. Nope. The word? No. Michelle? Yes. What goes on? No. Girl? No. I'm looking through you. No. In my life? Yes. Wait. No? (laughs) If I needed someone? I don't know. Run for your life. No. (laughs) Okay. So those are all the songs. Um, So before I did like little fun facts on all their originals, because all the albums I covered in Era 1 were a mix of originals and covers. Definitely. Yep. I was getting a little burnt out on Beatles research. (laughs) So I don't have a little... I don't know why. I don't know why either. It's just been a week of nonstop. Beatles, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't have fun facts for all of these songs, because these were all originals. Yes. Right. But I do It's a little different when it was only part of the album. Yeah. I tried to do it for, like, about half. Okay. And there was really no rhyme or reason to the songs I picked, so... Alrighty. There you go. But... we know. Yeah, you know. So, just to help you, the audience, anyone, understand kind of, like, what other music was coming out during this time, there was Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone... Uh, the Animals, We Gotta Get Out of This Place, My Generation by The Who, mm. and Beach Boys, California Girls. Yeah. Just figured those were some pretty big songs most people would have yep, would know about. I know those. There you go. See? See, I know something. <laughs> um, so something the band was struggling with a bit during this album was how much of their own personal issues they wanted to involve in their writing of these songs. Mm -hmm. Um, Lennon specifically Mm -hmm. was struggling with this and how much they were actually like comfortable sharing. Fair enough. Yeah. Yep. Um, so for this album, they were focused on producing something they would have been interested in buying back in the day. Quote, (laughs) we want to do what we would have liked when we were record buyers ourselves. End quote, said McCartney. Okay. I think this is probably relating more so to the number of songs versus maybe what they would have actually been listening to back in the day, just like with what was around this quote. I think, like, how many songs they put on this album. Because, uh, you know, when they were record buyers, they were, like, teenagers, very into American yeah. rock and roll. Sure. And that's not this album. So. But still a nice thought that he was, like, thinking about the audience, sort yeah. of. Um, how many songs did you say was on this one? I didn't. I can count them real quick. I'm sorry. There's 14 again. Okay. So So it's a pretty standard length. Album length for them. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So, starting with the first song on the album, Drive My Car. (laughs) Uh, this was a more difficult song for them to get through. Uh, McCartney showed up to Lennon's with a tune, like, all ready to go, but the lyrics were still a mess. Um, the original line, instead of, baby, you can drive my car, was going to be, baby, you can buy me golden rings. But Lennon was not a fan of that. Oh, I do know that song. Yeah. <laughs> Figured you would. He has said that line. I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Shit. Um... 
So they were getting ready to stop working on it completely after working on it for quite some time because they just like could not figure out what they were doing with the song. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they went to go have some tea and Lennon suggested drive my car instead of like the golden rings thing. Sure. Which is just like a rip off of the Christmas song. Come on, Paul. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Because I'm sure they would have sung it the same way. <laughs> yeah. We all know the melody. <laughs> um, and so this is just a s- snippet from a full quote from the book that I used as... Oh, so I guess I should have said my sources are the same mm. as before. The book, The Beatles, The Biography, and then the Beatles Bible website. But this cool. is just like a bit of a quote from that book. Um So it says, perhaps as Paul implied to apply the old blues euphemism for sex, perhaps because it just sounded good, changing like the drive my car to from Golden Rings, Mm -hmm. which honestly, when I listened to this song, it never hit me as like a double (laughs) meaning. So I was like, when I was reading this, I was like, what? Oh. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and then it's like, that. you think about it, you're like, all right, sure. Okay, yeah, sure, I can see that. All right. There's a lot of things, though, a lot of, you could make an argument is the double meaning. Yeah. So, whatever. The next song on the album is Norwegian Wood. Uh, the full title is Norwegian Wood, This Bird Has Flown, mm-hmm. which I never knew until I was researching this. Nope. So, debates on who actually wrote this song have been around. See, this is... I didn't write that full sentence, and so <laughs> I realized that I just put a note there for myself. I didn't know where to go. been <laughs> around. Um, there have been debates on who actually wrote this song. Is what I should have written. So I, I could have just said that. <laughs> um, although, I do feel like that's fairly common. For this group, especially, like, the farther on they got, I noticed a lot of, like, well, Lennon said he wrote it, but I helped him with this part, or vice versa, between Uh Lennon and McCartney, so. Well, this was kind of, yeah. Yeah, I get into that a little bit with the next album. Yeah. Um, So, Lennon initially said that it was, quote, my song completely, Mm -hmm. end quote, and was based on an extramarital affair he was having at the time. However, years later, McCartney would argue that Lennon, quote, had this first stanza, end quote, and some work on the underlining tune, but that was it. McCartney also said that this song was based on an inside joke about Pine Walls and Peter Asher's, who was a guitarist for them at one point, in his bedroom. Okay. So, I don't know. (laughs) Who knows where songs actually came from for them later on? I felt like in the first era, it was much easier to be like, this person came up with the idea, and Uh now as we're getting farther in, it's like, who came up with the idea? I mean, I'm going to venture a guess. It might have been the drugs. (laughs) That's just my theory. If you think about it, looking back on writing a song, if you were high, it might be harder to determine, oh, yeah, that was me, Mm -hmm. or... Yeah, that was me, not you. But then the other person's going to be like, no, I that definitely was me. said that. Yeah. You were just high. <laughs> or they have really bad memories like me. 
And just actually can't remember what happened. Mm. Could be. Or it was the drugs. Or or they have bad memories because of the drugs. <laughs> um, so the next song is You Won't See Me. I didn't, I'm not going to talk about that. Okay. Um, the one after that is Nowhere Man. Do you know that one? Nope. You do. Okay. I would I would think you would know it. Have okay. you ever seen, I know we're not talking about this right now, but have you ever seen Yellow Submarine? I went, I'm pretty sure we watched it together. So. It's the animated, well, yeah. part of it's animated. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, that song is in that movie. Okay. Well, I guess then I have at least heard it once. I think you would know it. Okay. But I'm not going to sing it, because we, we all know I don't have a nice singing voice, so. Uh, this song was mostly written by Lennon with some help from McCartney at the end to help polish off the rough edges, quote, unquote. <laughs> uh, Lennon is said to have started writing after a drug-filled night of club hopping cool. yep. and arriving home uber high. He struggled for about five hours to come up with something, but just ended up falling asleep. Later, he woke up with an idea, quote, I thought of myself as a nowhere man sitting in this nowhere land, hmm. end quote. And from there, the rest... Just kind of came together. Okay. The next song is Think for Yourself, and this one was written by Harrison. Your favorite. George is my favorite. Um, one of his first philosophical songs, although he claims he doesn't remember who the inspiration was. Quote, <laughs> Think for Yourself must be written about somebody from the sound of it, but all this time later, I don't quite recall who inspired that tune. Probably the government. End quote. <laughs> by Harrison. <laughs> um, it was recorded in a single session. Mm-hmm. And then I have this question. Are you familiar with this song? <laughs> no. Didn't we go over this already? Yes. <laughs> so this is what happens. <laughs> When I do a lot of research. I'm sorry. I can't okay. remember everything. That's fair. Okay. Well, I must have asked that for a reason. And then I have a quote underneath that question that says, An unusually harshly worded warning about the perils of leaving bad deeds unrectified. Okay. I guess is what the song's about. Cool. Alrighty. Yep. After Think for Yourself is the word. Which the, just it's makes called me, the word? It's called the oh, word. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm not talking about that one. And then we're going to go to Michelle, which I do talk about this one. Good. I know this one. Yay. Sort of. <laughs> I mean, better than all the others, that's for sure. Yeah. On the album. So McCartney had messed around with a finger picking technique for a while um, up to this point, And Lennon suggested that he do something with that for one of their songs. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, McCartney had already been working with a lyric that involved the name Michelle, so he worked some of the few French phrases he knew into the song, and then had his friend's wife, Janet, who taught French at primary school, flesh out the rest of it. Okay. So, um, when McCartney played it for Lennon a couple of days later, it was basically done, just needed a middle eight, whatever that means. Probably a bridge? I don't know. That's my best guess. Lennon had been listening to I Put a Spell on You by Nina Simone. Mm -hmm. Um, You're familiar with that song. Oh, yeah. Okay. And basically took took the lines, I love you, I love you, I love you, and changed the emphasis from you 
to love and, quote, added a little bluesy edge, end quote. Okay. So, there you go. Next two songs are What Goes On and Girl, which I am not talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next song is I'm Looking Through You. It said McCartney drew inspiration for this song from his relationship with Jane Asher, who we talked about from Air One. Right, okay. Um, which seems to be a big thing that he did and still does when it comes to his songwriting. Not from her, his relationship with her, but just like in general. It seems like he pulls a lot of inspiration from his relationships for his songs, which I know we also talked about in Era One. Um, they were going through a rough time with her focusing on her acting career and him wanting to be more about the Beatles than she was. Uh, is kind of like an extremely shortened version of what was going on between the two of them at this time. Okay. <laughs> so this song got them close to being done with the album, but they were still a couple songs short. They wanted to have a total of 14 songs mm-hmm. on the album, which they did for the UK version. The huh. US cut it down to 10. Yes. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Um, the next song is In My Life, which I think a lot of people are familiar with. Maybe not from the title, though. I don't think the title gives it away. Oh. Unless I'm thinking of the wrong song. Which could be. Is it, is it in my life I love you more? Is that a good yeah. song? It's the one that starts, there are places I remember. Yeah. All my life. So that Airbnb yep. commercial. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's in that Airbnb commercial nowadays. Yep. So it's a pretty popular song that I do think a lot of people are familiar with. I just don't know if a lot of people realize it's called In My Life. Versus I Love You More. Or or like Places I'll Remember or something, you know? Yeah. So, um, with this song, Lennon removed the third person that he had been uh, using on other songs like No More Man and Girl, and he made it into a first person. In My Life. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So, it originally started out with Lennon recalling places from his home in Liverpool, but by the time he finished it up, he wasn't really happy with the direction it had taken, because um, he, I think, in the original version, he had, like, specifically like, called out places in Liverpool, which obviously is not the case in the final song. Mm-hmm. It's, no, it's much more general. Yeah. But, hey, that sells, I feel like. Yeah. Because everyone can relate to that. Exactly. There are places I remember. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I, I also the have end. places I yeah. remember. <laughs> oh, wow. What do Crazy. Um, so McCartney worked on it, removed all the obvious callbacks, and only alluded to the locations. Mm-hmm. Um, again, there's a debate on who wrote the song. <laughs> Lennon would take full credit for it since he did initially write it, and it's based on his life, but McCartney argues that once they were done rewriting it, only a few lines remained the same and saying... He wrote the whole melody inspired by a Smokey Robinson motif, what the minors, oh no, sorry, with the minors and little harmonies. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, the last three songs are Wait, If I Needed Someone, and Run For Your Life, which I am not going to talk about, but now I feel like I should have done more on this album. I mean, I have a couple more oh, bullets. Yeah. But, like, I feel like maybe I, I like, should have done more. <laughs> um, 
I feel like people might be disappointed with me not going deeper into Rubber Soul. Yeah. Well, it's too bad there isn't anything on the internet that they could look up about them. <laughs> Fill in the gaps themselves. Too bad they just can't do their own research. Well, these lazy kids these days. <laughs> um. So, yeah, that's the list of songs and some fun little facts about them. Uh, so, my last two points here are during the recording of this album, George Martin actually broke away from the recording label they had been using, EMI, and began his own, AIR, okay. which stood for Associated Independent Recording, and brought with him some of his talent, including Adam Faith, The Hollies, which I think we talked about in our Skiffle well, episode. You know what? I think we did, actually. Freddie and the Dreamers. Yeah. And, of course, The Beatles. So, this breakaway really started to change their sound. A quote from Martin, the studio itself was full of instruments, pedal harmoniums, tack pianos, a Celeste, and a Hammond organ. Sure, I got all of Mm -hmm. those 100% correct. That's why we used all those different sounds on our records, because they were there. They were there, right. Yeah. And they clearly had the desire to Mm -hmm. experiment, so. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So, this is also... Maybe not the start, but when it becomes much more prevalent of Harrison's use of the sitar. Yes. He added it to the Norwegian Wood song that helped add drama to the tune. Um, and there's a quote from Star that says, We were all open to anything when George introduced the sitar. Oh. So. Well, that's great. At least he didn't come in with the idea and everyone goes, oh. Right. That sounds weird. Yeah, exactly. Don't use that, <laughs> Don't use that please. Um, so my last little point is I just felt like this last paragraph or so of the chapter into the cosmic consciousness from the Beatles, the biography really sums up the album. Mm. I know in era one, I said that that was my longest quote. What I meant to say was it was my longest quote from era from one. Era one. This is my longest quote from era two. I'm sure everyone remembers from four, four weeks, weeks ago. ago but... Well, just in case. <laughs> okay. So just... Bear with me. I'm just going to reach straight. take a deep breath. <laughs> straight from my laptop. Like, I don't do that all the time. And take <clears> a <throat> drink of water. I know, your right? throat. Here we go. Settle in. <laughs> Get ready. Because it's a whole paragraph or so. <sighs> okay. <laughs> Trust that. Sorry. <laughs> Had to break the tension. Okay. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> This was the departure record, Ringo said. By any name, it was a masterpiece. The Beatles had already settled on a concept for the cover. It would be a fashionable photograph of the band from among those taken by Bob Freeman in the garden of John's house in Weybridge. This is not in the quote, but just a callback. Bob Freeman, Robert Freeman, who did their thing, their cover from... uh, Oh! With the Beatles... Yes, with the Beatles, their second yeah. album. Okay. Uh, okay, back to the quote. They'd worn new suede outfits for the occasion, along with a new look, mannered, self-assured, <laughs> candid. Freeman had shot more than a dozen rolls of film at the session, necessitating a consultation with the Beatles in order to choose the right photo. Everyone assembled in the parlor of a London flat one night to view the proof sheets that Freeman had converted to slides. Waltz 
projecting them onto an album-sized piece of white cardboard. Bob inadvertently tilted the card backwards, Paul remembered. The effect was to stretch the perspective and elongate the faces. Mm. What a groovy effect. (laughs) (laughs) It reminded them of hallucinations during an acid trip. of course. Where everything was out of whack. Was it possible to print the photo that way, they wondered? Freeman's response, a resounding yes triggered some discussion about an American blues artist's reaction to the Rolling Stones. Well, you know they're good, he commented, but it's plastic soul. Plastic soul? What a hoot, they thought. It had a clever (sighs) ring to it, and it was irreverent. Irreverent, (laughs) period. (laughs) A potential album title? Very close, but Freeman's elasticized photo stretched the phrase in another direction, which everyone felt hit the mark. Okay. The name of the album, they agreed, would be Rubber Soul. That's really cool. (laughs) I didn't know that it was because of the picture. The end. Thank you very much for coming to my TED Talk. (laughs) I liked that. That was a good (sighs) quote. I was nervous. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was engaged, so. Great. Yeah. So that's Rubber Soul. I mean, that's not. That's that is a summary. Not, yeah, that's like not all you need to know about Rubber Soul, but that's what I'm giving you about Rubber Soul. Cool. Take it away. Gotta, gotta listen to it again, apparently. There's a lot of songs I didn't know. All right, so for Revolver, my sources were Wikipedia, BeatlesBible.com, and the Pitchfork review of this album. Woohoo! Um, yes, so Revolver was their seventh studio album, um, named Revolver, not for a gun, but because (laughs) they wanted it to be, they were like, oh, records go around, they revolve. That's literally what it comes from, is like, because it's like the motion of whatever, it's a record goes around, so it's like a revolver, quote unquote. (laughs) Yeah. That's it. I didn't know that. That's fun about that, right? I didn't know that either. so. (laughs) So, also... Personal side note, Eleanor Rigby is my favorite Beatles song, always has been. Mm. I didn't know until doing this research that it was released on my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> About died. That's um, funny because uh, when I asked my dad what his favorite lyric was, like is from the Beatles, at least at the time, he said it was an Ele- Eleanor Rigby quote. So It's just a good song. It's just great. It's sad, but great songwriting so yeah the album itself was released august 5th 1966 um it has very distinct cover art it was their um second beatles album after rubber soul to not feature the group's name on the front cover Mm -hmm. so they were just that popular by then everyone knew their faces their mop tops or whatever Mm mm-hmm um, the artwork was by Klaus Vormann, a musician and artist who the Beatles met in Hamburg, Germany. It was pen drawings, uh, black and white pen drawings, and then there's a collage section in the middle that's like photographs uh, of the Beatles by Robert Whitaker and Robert Freeman. Hey! He just was like their, their like, fan photographer. walked around <laughs> and took pictures of them, apparently. <laughs> Anyway, so the album was recorded April to June 1966. It was supposed to be recorded in the U.S., but the studios wanted so much money from them that they just stayed home. And there's like a quote from Paul, and I'm paraphrasing, but he was like, they knew they could charge us whatever 
they wanted because we were the Beatles. Like, they were just trying to gouge us. So we just mm-hmm. said, no, oh, fuck you. We'll just stay home. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> That's, yeah. That is not Paul's quote. Um, so there were 14 songs total on the UK album. But on the U.S. album, there were only 11. Interesting. Um, and that's the North American LP. So I guess I would assume that means Canada and Mexico, too. When mm-hmm. it was released there. Um, three of these songs were written by George, which was a significant increase from previous albums mm-hmm. in terms of his contribution songwriting-wise. Um, there was... <laughs> Technically one single, which this is something I have not been able to figure out. It is one single, but it's listed as Eleanor Rigby slash Yellow Submarine. So, like, my guess is it's, like, a double-sided record. You know, it's one song on one side and one song on the other. But it's considered a quote-unquote single. Eleanor Rigby was in Yellow Submarine, like the movie. Yeah. So. I just can't figure out why. Like, in the... The other albums I researched, it was like, oh, they released this song and then this song as singles. But this one was like, they released Eleanor Rigby slash Yellow Submarine. <laughs> I was like, what? All right. I don't know. I don't know. It's, I, I couldn't find an answer on how that worked. So, anywho, Eleanor Rigby, my favorite Beatles song, um, broke with a lot of pop music conventions with its string quartet arrangement and its lyrics being like, a story mm-hmm. um, peaked at number 11 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. Uh, there's a quote from Paul uh, saying Eleanor Rigby would have been worse because string players in America aren't so good oh, if well. they'd recorded in the U.S. like they'd originally planned. So there are a few songs he was saying, like, in, there's a bigger quote, and he was basically saying, like, um, there are some songs he think could have been better if they'd been recorded in the U.S., but, like, distinctly, he was like, Eleanor Rigby would not have been better. hmm <laughs> Like, damn, all right. Um, Yellow Submarine was the other half of the single. Um, <laughs> it was number one in the U.K., several European countries, Australia, um, Canada, and New Zealand. And in the U.S., it peaked at number two on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. Super popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, this album as a whole is regarded as one of the most innovative albums in pop music history. Quote from Paul on the album itself says, This album has taken longer than the others because normally we go into the studios with, say, eight numbers of our own and some old numbers like Mr. Moonlight or some numbers we used to know, which we just do up a bit. This time we had our own numbers, including three of George's, so we had to work them all out. We hadn't had a bass to work on, a bassist to work on, just one guitar melody and a few chords. So we've really had to work on them. I think it'll be our best album yet. They'll never be able to copy this. <laughs> That's part of the quote, I swear. Um, the album reached number three on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. So it's up there. Mm-hmm. Sorry about my spoon if you heard that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Jeez, Taylor. <laughs> no. Um, the, the album was recorded uh, after a three-month break at the beginning of 1966 in which all the Beatles kind of went their own directions and did their own thing. They were all taking time for themselves to explore their own interests, which was like the first time since they were a solid unit, you know, recording their first album that they'd ever done that. It would have been a long time. 
years. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's definitely reflected on the album musically, which we'll talk about later, but also mm-hmm. in the fact that at, on the back of the album, each song has the lead singer written out. Oh. Like the original album, obviously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you can see it says, like, the song, and then next to it is a column for lead vocals. Oh. So it's, like, almost just as much of a part of the title. Mm-hmm. You know? So I think that was definitely the start of the Beatles, each wanting their own time to shine, which we know that comes to play later, comes into play later. Um... This album took 300 hours of studio time to complete, which was astronomical for an album in 1966 (laughs) because pop was still really not seen as, like, art, like, high art at the time. It was a way to make money for record companies. Yeah. Um, The album's release coincided with um, John Lennon's remark that the band had become, quote, more popular than Jesus. Mm Mm-hmm. And so there was that out there, and then plus the band's outspokenness on contemporary issues made the album's release less successful in the U.S. than past albums, because we're backwards prudes, apparently. Yay! Yay, America! I know, I know. Okay, so musically, this was the first album without producer George Martin. He wanted to get a raise, and the studio denied him, and he was like what the hell, I have put so much... I mean, look, I've given you the Beatles. <laughs> and mm-hmm. they wouldn't give him a raise. So he was like, all right, I'm out of here. Um, however, this freed the group up to work in and out of the studio and explore a lot of new sounds. So the band was, like, fully calling the shots at this point versus conforming to their label or their bosses. So George Martin was not working with them anymore? Uh-uh. That's this confusing. Was, oh, no, why? Does he come back into play later? No, because he took, and what I found, he took them with him. Like, he, Martin took the Beatles with him into their new, into his new recording. So, I don't know. Some- See, this is where when we research separately, yeah, I <laughs> it know. doesn't work out because we could have looked more into it. Like, okay, well, when did they record the songs for Reversal? I don't have that information in my notes. Oh. I know you have yours, but like, maybe they recorded the songs for Reversal before. Revolver. Let's, let's find out. Okay, so I had or said uh, Revolver's songs were recorded April to June in 1966. Rubber Soul was recorded October to November in 65. So it was before. So it was beforehand. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. See, this is this is where we don't know. Sorry. I'm just going to full steam ahead it. No, that's fine. I just, yeah. I mean, all I have is the quote that I used here from that book that said, you know, Martin's like, you know, we used all those instruments because they were there. Like, we had the ability to after we left EMI. So, I don't know. Well, listen, like, I I wouldn't have, like, put down this is the first album without producer George Martin if I hadn't got that from some. Well, yeah, no, I know. (laughs) But, like, it's just weird. Like, why? Yeah. We're clearly refining some discrepancy in sources here, which is, like, well do i guess well yeah exactly. we can't do anything about that i'm no. just gonna roll with it and say george martin was in there all right so a quote from ringo about this time uh, and recording this album was a uh, quote i think the drugs were kicking in a little more heavily on this album i don't think we were on anything major yet just the old usual the grass and the acid <laughs> 
boy. Yeah, right? <laughs> and um, Paul's song, Gotta Get You Into My Life, was not written about someone. He described it as, quote, an ode to pot. So, like, sure. Clearly, that was a huge part of this album was the drugs they were experiencing and yeah. experimenting with. Um, so, <laughs> the band had no plans to ever perform these songs live. So, they used... Lots of effects, like automatic double tracking, Verispeed, reverse tapes, close audio milking, and instruments um, outside of their standard live setup. Also, lyrically, this album differs quite a bit from previous albums. Like, they went from... I mean, I, I think Rubber Soul could also be looped into this statement. But, like, they mm-hmm. went from, like, fluffy teen stuff to a lot more serious topics that actually reflected the current world. Yeah. A good example of that is Taxman. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a social commentary. So, they were not doing that in their first few albums. <laughs> no. They were like, dance. <laughs> dance. <laughs> um, the songs are, reflect the band's interest in drugs, specifically LSD, Eastern philosophy, and the avant-garde. All of John's songs were concerned with drugs, the creative mind, the suspicion of the outside world, or all three. Um, specifically, the song Tomorrow Never Knows was mm-hmm. a full-on attempt to recreate the immersive experience of LSD, which is it's kind of the standout track of the album because of that. The lyrics are adapted from an adaptation of the Tibetan Book for the Dead. Six li- different loops were used in the song, which was a seagull noise, a distorted recording of Paul McCartney laughing, an orchestra playing a chord, notes played on a flute, and a second, a mellotron? Oh, oh, sorry. Notes played on a mellotron's flute setting, and then a second mellotron on a violin setting, and then a distorted sitar. <laughs> they were just... God. They just did all the things. And then there was significant manipulation of John Lennon's singing voice throughout the whole thing, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, like, that was definitely John Lennon's, like, personal staple on the album. Um, George was, you know, he was practicing sitar a lot. He had picked it up. Uh, he was really into, like, the Eastern philosophies and whatnot. So that was sort of his staple on the album. And then Paul was actually exploring a lot of classical music at the time and working on his skills as a composer. This album is typically thought of as, like, Paul's maturation record, where, like, he really came into his own at this point as a songwriter. Um, There are people who believe that three of his best songs are on this album. Um, For No One is one of them. Here, There, and Everywhere. And, of course, Eleanor Rigby. Mm Mm-hmm. This album further changed pop music. So they started with, you know, um, original compositions, but here, like, some original compositions on their original albums, right? Or their older albums. But here they take it further by pushing what the genre can do musically Mm -hmm. instead of sticking to what already has been done in pop music. So influences include Motown, classical Indian music, children's songs, I mean, with Yellow Submarine. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they were just really, truly meshing all of these different genres together to create this masterpiece album mm-hmm. that significantly changed the course of pop music and their careers. So that's Revolver. There you go. 
It's a wild ride. It is. <laughs> I actually knew quite a lot of these songs. I was oh, proud. Yay. Mm-hmm. Like you knew them from the title or as you were listening through the album? Uh, I think both. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I honestly feel like I know a lot more songs than I realize I do. I just don't know the titles exactly. of them. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, I have a quick correction. We did some research on the George Martin Air slash EMI slash Parlophone <laughs> Studios that we found, and we're not quite sure. But I will say, George Martin was still with them when they recorded Revolver. Um, here's the quote that confused me a little bit, <laughs> where I got that idea from. Longtime Beatles producer George Martin, justifiably upset that EMI refused to give him a raise on the back of his extremely profitable work with the Beatles, quit his post with the company in August 1965. Martin used his clout to create his own company, and the group and producer used theirs to effectively camp out at Abbey Road Studios for whatever length of time suited them, rather than being forced to comply to the rigid and economically sound schedules demanded by labels at the time. The Beatles can now work uh, in and out of the studio, taking full advantage of new advancements in sound recording that allowed them to reflect upon and tinker with their work, explore new instruments and studio trickery, and refine their music by solving problems when they arose. End quote. So I didn't understand from there that when George Martin quit, that he took the Beatles with them. <laughs> but he so, kind of didn't. But also. he kind of didn't. <laughs> it's... It's confusing. Because it was, they still recorded it under the EMI mm-hmm. Parlophone labels, but apparently at Abbey Road Studios. Yes. So. Part, I think part of it. Because yeah. I'm on something now. It's called the paulmccartneyproject.com. Uh-huh. And it lists out the songs and it has like who played what and all that jazz for each song. Um, and this shows like Drive My Car, Recording. October 13th, 1965, Studio, EMI Studio, mm. Studio 2, and Abbey Road. So, okay. I think they it just kind of recorded everywhere. Okay. I don't know. It's confusing. But they were, it sounded like they were under the same label. Yes. I guess. George Martin was still their producer. Yes. I think those so are the big things to know. He should, should have, should get credit where credit's due. He clearly, like, stuck with them from the beginning. And said, oh, you want to do some crazy experimental things that haven't been done in pop before? Let's do it. Mm-hmm. So that's awesome. He was clearly a really great producer for them. And did not leave them behind. So I stand corrected. <laughs> it's just confu- It's just confusing the way it is. And we've looked at, like, a few different sources. Yep. And nothing, like, black and white says George Martin left but was still able to produce for the Beatles even though he didn't work for EMI anymore and EMI was still the studio that the Beatles were under. Yep. But everyone was still fine with it even though George Martin quit EMI. They were still cool with him being the producer. Like, there's nothing that that we found that... Explain, like, maybe the Beatles... I mean, I would assume at that point they probably had enough money to, you know, pay him for his producer... I mean, that's true. It could have been one of those things that, um, for whatever... I mean, I feel like if that were the case, somewhere would have said that the Beatles were like, they put their foot down on this, even though George George. Martin wasn't with EMI anymore, he was still going to be their producer. And they were big enough that they they could have done that. They could have pulled their weight. Yeah. So, we don't know. Sorry. But we tried to figure it out. 
We did. So, if you know, let us know. Please email us or DS, D, DS us, DM us on Instagram. <laughs> Jeez. This one really killed our brains. Can you tell? Oh, my God. <laughs> yes, brain oh, is fried. Lord, but okay. We did it. We got through era two of the Beatles. Yeah. <gasps> Woohoo! We're done with that era. One more to go. One more to go, but... Two more episodes. It's a long one. Oh, it's probably going to be the longest. Mm-hmm. Tea? You gotta go over tea now. All right. Who went first? Me. Okay. That was so long ago, I can't remember. <laughs> um, I have the Bigelow... What is it? <laughs> Plantation Mint. I was just going to call it Spearmint, and then I was like, oh, I don't think that was actually the name it of it. because it like Spearmint. Yes. Okay. Um, I actually really like it. I'm surprised. Good. I just think it's very refreshing. It's not like drinking gum? <laughs> uh, it's not as strong as the flavor, like when you're yeah. chewing gum, but I mean, you can definitely taste the spearmint in it, yeah. so. I guess that's true of most teas. They usually smell a lot stronger than they taste. Mm-hmm. But it's good. I really, good. I really like it. I, good. I could see myself drinking this on a regular basis. So I think I'm going to give it a nine. Mm. That is quite an endorsement. All right. Well, I had the green tea matcha with toasted rice from Traditional Medicinals. It smells like garbage. (laughs) Uh, So I was like, should I even try to drink this? But I, I did. I took a sip and it doesn't taste great either. No. But it also, it doesn't, it's just like I just said, it smells terrible, but the taste is like way less than that, Mm. way less intense. It really just tastes like watered down matcha. Mm. And that's very not for me. Fair. Um, I stopped drinking it. So, um, yeah, I can't imagine, I don't know, zero out of ten. Oh, wow. (laughs) I'm not drinking this. You should smell it. Mm. Because, you know, here's the thing. Part of the enjoyment of tea is the smell for me, too. Yeah. So it's like I have to, like, hold my breath when I go in for a drink. Mm-hmm. That's not an enjoyable experience for me. <laughs> Do you want to smell this tea? Yeah. Get I like mint. Spearmint. Oh, that's nice. Right. Mm. Oh, my sinuses are cleared. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to smell that tea? If you really want to, here you are. I feel like it's only fair. You smelled my lovely spearmint tea. Mmm. <laughs> it's a very, yeah, very earthy, which makes sense. Smell. I think it smells kind of burnt, too. Yeah. Just no. Yeah. Just big no <laughs> from me. Big no from me on yeah. that one. Big, big zero out of ten. <laughs> okay. Well, on that note... <laughs> <laughs> Let's wrap this on up. You want me to do it? You want to do it? I don't it doesn't matter. All right. You can email us with <laughs> corrections to our episode. Yeah, sure <laughs> at can. at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram. We are at notamusedpodcast. We post every other Wednesday and every other Sunday when episodes come out. And also, please review and rate us where you can. 
Right. And subscribe so you know when our new episodes come out on yeah. whatever platform you listen on. Yeah. We'll see y'all in two weeks. Two weeks for the Beatles Air 3 Part, part one. 1. See you there. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye.